Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. letter to the Philippians, today reading chapter 1 and verse 12 through to the end of verse 26. And you'll find this on page 980, or alternatively if you have a large print version, 1164. And judging by the special affection with which uh, David Gibson speaks about the family dog, I can't wait for his children's address when we come to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, where Paul urges the Philippians to look out for the dogs. So that's, uh, (laughs) I think that will challenge even his ability to um, be a loving father as well as a faithful pastor to us as the flock. Well, let's uh, turn then to Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Some of you will know that there is a church planting network 
Um, I think it's probably a worldwide network nowadays called Acts 29. Acts 29. My guess is it's been given that name by younger Christian leaders um, who have had less sense than really old people like me have that there actually have been 2,000 years of church history since Acts chapter 28. And I suppose the idea is we are continuing the story of the expansion of the gospel from Acts chapter 28, but there's just a little, I think, unfortunate innuendo that between Acts 28 and the 20th century, nothing has really happened. If you're really looking for Acts 29, it's in this letter. This is, as it were, the next thing in Paul's life from Acts 28. Acts 28, he arrives in Rome. He's first of all under house arrest, although apparently chained to a soldier. Uh, he is able to speak to people freely. Jewish people come to him to hear what he has to say about the Messiah. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes from uh, wherever he was living, apparently at his own expense. But then Philippians appears to have been written just at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, when the trial of the Apostle Paul is imminent. And it looks as though perhaps he is being more carefully guarded, may even have been moved to a Roman prison rather than simply being under house arrest. And it's very clear in Philippians that there has been some communication between the church in Philippi and the Apostle Paul. They sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to minister to him and with a gift for him. But there's also been further communication. They've heard that Epaphroditus was ill, and no doubt in that intercommunication, one of the questions that the Philippians would have been asking is the kind of question perhaps you asked a friend when you come into church today, how are you doing? Especially if they've been going through a hard time. Amazing how differently you can pronounce the same words, isn't it? That how are you doing? Or how are you doing? The sense they may not be doing very well. And clearly the Philippians are concerned after all. This, this is the man who planted the church under God. This is one of that select number of apostles. Uh, from their point of view, this man is a, an absolute key to the advance of the gospel. For them, if one may say so, this is, this is much more serious than both uh, David and Will ending up in Peterhead prison. This is, this is the world church that to the Philippians appears to be at risk. And it's in that context that Paul writes this rather long section. This is a kind of five-sermon section, as you'll realize, and I'm only going to pick out a number of salient aspects of it. He writes to them, and this is why he talks about himself, first of all, because this is the first thing they want to know. They do not want, first of all, to know, is he really grateful for our gift? 
The gift was a gift of love for him, and therefore their first concern is not, did we cheer him up by our gift, but how is he really doing? And in this marvelous section, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wonderfully expounds to them his circumstances in a way that is designed to help them to trust in a providential God. And he does this really in three ways. There are three sub-themes that run through these verses. Um, I think we could say in many ways that they are the three Ps. The first is about Paul being a prisoner. The second is about the preaching of the brethren. And you'll find that in verses 15 through 18. And the third at the end of the section, is about his present situation. And in each of these areas, he's giving them guidance about how he discerns the providence of God in his life. He just finished saying that he prayed for them that they would have knowledge with discernment that was characterized by love. And what he's giving us here is knowledge with discernment. It's one thing to believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, but what Paul is doing here is helping them to understand how he discerns the providential hand of God in his circumstances and how by God's grace he is able to respond to it. So what does he say, first of all, about being a prisoner? I want you to know, brothers, I think that could almost be expressed, dear family, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually really turned out to advance the gospel. In other words, the, the very reality that they expected, namely that Paul would be silenced, that the advance of the gospel would be stymied, has been thrown into a kind of divine reverse gear by the purposes of God. And what he has discovered is, not only has he had opportunity to preach the gospel, which is very interesting because uh, this letter was obviously written after his letter to the Romans. And you remember, his letter to the Romans, he begins by saying, I am desperate to be with you in Rome. I am, I am kind of sorry that the providences of God have prevented me from being with you in Rome. And he almost ends the letter by saying, I am determined to come to you. I want to go to Spain, but I am absolutely determined to come to you. But this is the way in which the providences of God have operated. That in order for the Apostle Paul to meet with the Roman Christians and to preach the gospel in Rome, God in his wisdom has brought him there as a prisoner and not as a free man. We might say that God's wisdom is so clearly for Paul, much wiser than his wisdom. And the result of that was, the result of his recognition, God's hand is on my life, is that the brothers in Rome have been encouraged to speak the gospel more confidently. 
verse 14, most of the brothers having become, you know, that most makes us wonder, why not all? But most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Um, let me go back to my uh, hypothetical illustration. Would that be what we would anticipate as a congregation if our ministers were locked up in Peterhead? No, we wouldn't anticipate that. We would anticipate that we would, we, would, we would think if that happens to them, then what's going to happen to me? I need to, I need to tread more carefully on the glass. But instead, the reverse has been the fruit because they've seen the Apostle Paul's appreciation of the surprising wisdom of God in his providence. And as a result, there has been this even more wonderful providence. This has transformed them as a congregation. And uh, they have been much more bold to speak to others about the gospel. This, he says, has really served. I think I would say actually served. It's not just that it has superabundantly served, but surprise, surprise, it has actually turned out to be the reverse of what we anticipated. And this is often how it is. Paul is teaching the Philippians in the providence of God. Some of you will recognized by the sermon title that it, it's a riff on a great book by a man called John Flavel called The Mystery of Providence. And in that book, John Flavel says something that I've always found very helpful. He says, you know, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be perfectly read backwards. So, for example, if I were to give you a modern Hebrew book unless you knew some Hebrew, you would probably have a one in four chance of opening it at the right place. You might not be sure whether it was upside down or downside up. Your instinct would be to open it and then read it this way. But actually, since you read Hebrew from right to left, you would end up finding that the front of the book was the back of the book. And uh, I say one in four chance, unless you knew Hebrew, of getting it right. And uh, if, it's, um, if it's divinity school Hebrew, then slightly less chance of you actually being able to read it because it doesn't have any vowel points in it. Um, and that's what, that's what Flavor was saying. He's saying it's only when you it's only when you get the key to the language of God that you're able well understand the way in which his providence works. And one of the things clearly that he's teaching us here is that the providence of God is full of surprises. So that's how he speaks about the providence of God in relationship to being a prisoner. It's, it's opened up a sphere of ministry for him, and it's encouraged the brothers. But then there's this very peculiar section, and it is peculiar, isn't it, where he speaks about the preaching of the brothers. 
He says the brothers, most of them, become confident in the Lord and are much bolder in speaking the word without fear. Some. So we've moved from most now to some. And these some, obviously a minority, but a real minority. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And then thankfully he stops there. Just let me tell you about those who preach Christ from goodwill. The latter doing it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. They want to stand with me. Remember how Paul says to Timothy later on in his next imprisonment, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me, Christ's prisoner. Those are not necessarily psychologically the same thing in people's lives. I have met people unashamed of the gospel who seem to be profoundly ashamed of Christ's people when they're in difficulties. Confident in their knowledge of the gospel, but distant from those who suffer for the gospel. And these believers are the reverse. They preach Christ out of love for Christ and out of love for Paul. They feel bound to him. They want to share in that ministry. But then there's these very strange and I think very uncomfortable words. Some indeed preach Christ from envy. They proclaim Christ, verse 17, out of rivalry, not sincerely. Now, I think by sincerely there, what Paul is actually saying is not out of pure motives. They preach Christ, but not out of pure motives. Well, where's the mixture in the motive? What's the problem in the compound? It is that they do it out of rivalry thinking to afflict me in my chains, to, to rub my chains into my skin, as it were. Now, um, if you live your life in the world, um, you, may be, you may be accustomed to this kind of thing. Uh, colleagues who will do their work well in a particular way but part of their motivation may be to make sure you don't get the job or to make sure you don't look good. But it's a bit of a shock to find it in the church. But friends, uh, there is bad news for us here. It is also in the church. And it emerges in all kinds of subtle ways in the church. And I guess like me, during lockdown, you discovered there is Christianity on YouTube. Um, and you may have had the misfortune of happening upon Christian YouTube channels which exist almost exclusively to pull down the reputation of individuals who have had fruitful ministry because they think they can see just a, a speck of dirt on their white shirts. And well, let me feminize it, a speck of dirt on your new dress. What do people notice and remember? 
They don't notice the wonderful white shirt you were wearing. They don't notice the beautiful dress that you had specially bought for the wedding. They meet you again five years later and, oh yeah, you're the, you're the lady who had the mud on her new dress at so-and-so's wedding. And it's alive and well. And one of the interesting things that you notice if you watch those, and obviously I'm not encouraging you to look for them or to find them, is that there is almost never any real building up of the people of God in what is said. It all seems to be motivated by rivalry. But it can be done so well. And it's in the cause of the truth. And it's this kind of thing, apparently, that was happening here. All kinds of um, illustrations I could give, but if I did and this message were recorded, the people I was describing might recognize themselves, although, alas, people like that don't usually recognize themselves. And probably these people didn't either. And Paul uses language here. This is, this is rubbing salt into his wounds. And yet, look at what he says. I, f I find this is the real challenge, at least in situations where I think I have experienced things akin to this. This is the real challenge. How does Paul view the providences of God, not with respect to the brothers who are bound to him, who love him, and who are preaching the gospel faithfully, but how does he view this? Look at what he says at the end of the section. What then? Good question, Paul. That's the very question we wanted you to ask. And here's this great answer. Only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Now, the folks on the YouTube channels, they would have no truck with anything that was done out of pretense. Damn the whole thing. Did you notice the Apostle Paul? Notice the grace that must have invaded his heart at this point. I mean, the man is, the man is from one point of view down and out. And now they're putting their soul on his face and turning it around. And he's saying, at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters to me is that Christ is proclaimed. And I tolerate that. That's what the text says, isn't it? I tolerate that. No, that's not what the text says at all. This is the, this is the mind-blowing transformation of an appreciation and discernment of the providence of God. It enables Paul to say, in that I rejoice. That's a wow, isn't it? In that I rejoice. Um... And then we must move on to the third element, his present situation, what's going to happen to him. And it's really interesting to see what he says here, which I think almost all commentators are agreed on, but it's not totally obvious in the text. He says, I will rejoice because I know that through your prayers, this is verse 19, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And at first sight, it seems to mean so Paul believes that their prayers are going to lead to him being delivered from prison. And he does actually seem to have that confidence, but actually what he's doing here is, is citing a phrase from the book of Job in the Greek translation that 
Paul used as he lived in a world that spoke Greek. And the words come from the 13th chapter of Job, just after the verse that we all know, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We all know that verse, but we might not all know the verse that comes next, where Paul quotes from Job, where Job says, and I know that this is going to work out for my ultimate deliverance, my ultimate vindication before the throne of God. So whatever happens before Caesar when he's tried, the big thing for him is that he's going to be able to stand on that great day, vindicated, justified, righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's this that so floods his vision that any human judgment on his life is almost incidental to him. It may lead to pain, but at the end of the day, as he makes clear later on, it is actually incidental. Remember how he writes to the Corinthians, he says, he says, how you judge me is incidental to me, partly because I'm hardly capable of judging myself sometimes, but chiefly because the only judgment that really matters is God's justifying judgment on my life. And when I'm clear about that, I know that through your prayers for me, I will persevere to that day when I stand before him and receive his vindication. But he's also thinking, isn't he, about his vindication before the civil authorities, as it is, as it, as it also is, we might say, my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he goes into this internal discussion where he, he says, uh, I'm not sure which I'd rather have. Would I rather have ongoing life or would I rather actually have death? And he, he says this, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I think that's beautiful because Paul well knows the choice ain't his, whether he's going to have life or death. The choice is entirely God's, but he's saying, in, in my own mind, how am I thinking? What, how do I balance these things out? And he, he works it through in this beautiful way. And he draws this conclusion, partly that he believes that he is going to remain in the flesh, and if he remains in the flesh, he has this beautiful expression, doesn't he? Something to, to write and uh, put on the mirror. If I'm to remain here, it must mean there's fruitful service for me. Incidentally, I think that's a great word when you get old. <laughs> and then when you get really old, and then when you get so old, you are you were so energetic in the life of the church. I was saying to David earlier on, I am convinced now that if I organized creation, I would make sure ministers started life old and got younger so that they knew what it was like to be old when they actually got young and how easy it is to feel, I'm done. There's nothing left for me to do. 
And some of us are kind of old, and there's still things for us to do. But as we go on and on and on and on, I had a text from a friend last night asking me to see a lady who's been a faithful Christian and now can hardly speak. You can understand that she would be in what the older translations called a straight betwixt two. I'd rather depart and be with Christ. But brothers and sisters, for every day that God keeps us here, He means it to be fruitful service. Even maybe especially if that fruitful service is not because of any way we appear to serve in the church, but just because we are there in the church. We're there at 83 for the people who are 23 so that they can see what Christ's grace looks like somebody's life when they get nearer the end. And that's the, that's the tremendous confidence that Paul has in the providence of God. And he says, convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, just, you know, apply this me to some Christian you know who can contribute almost nothing physically to the life of this church or another church that you know. To think that they can say, in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. In Paul's case, it's because of my coming again. In their case, it's just because they're there. And so in these three instances, these three contexts that could have, could have completely flattened him, you, you sense that he's getting, he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because as he, as he, he's almost talking to himself here, as he, as he talks to himself like the psalmist saying, why should you be cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. And as he lifts his eyes up to his God, he sees that in amazing ways God is providentially working for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the blessing of these dear Philippian friends. Now, we all know, I think, Christ appointed Paul as an apostle to be a messenger of the gospel. But he also appointed Paul, and he's very conscious of this, not just to be a messenger of the gospel, but to be a model of the gospel. And so half a dozen times anyway in his letters, he very specifically says to Christians, look on me as an example Look on me as a model. I sometimes think it's as though God has, has made him like a, a, a big working model of how he works and what the Christian life is like so that those of us who are more like little Lego models can see the principles in his life and then have the wisdom and knowledge to discern those same principles in our lives as well. And as I say, he, he pretty frequently says, now, God has made me a model for you. Imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. So if he's a model here, um, what, are the, what are the principles that we can learn from him? Now, there have been three points in this sermon, and there are now four points, but the four points will come quickly. 
Um, I promise. And they're accompanied by music, which makes it even better. So the first of them is this. They're all, this is the four R's of elementary principles of discerning the providence of God. First of all, we need to have a recognition that God's providence can seem very messy to us, but it's never messy to Him. Very messy to us. I mean, it can bring you to the point where you may be screaming to God, God, what are you doing? But it's never messy to Him. And incidentally, for those of you who are soccer fans, that's M-E-S-S-Y. Um, I, I do think that the Philippians must have trusted him here because he'd actually come to them through a series of messy providences. And there were some messy providences when he was there. So they knew they could trust him. And these were very messy providences. I mean, this is a man who'd set his heart on going to Rome, ends up going to Rome as a prisoner. This is a man who's been faithful as a prisoner. He finds that there are there are Christians in Rome who are, who are, however they are doing it, are preaching in such a way as to minimize his influence and to rub salt into his wounds. Yet the interesting thing is, Paul seems to have had a very deep conviction that God wanted him to go to Rome. And so, by a way Paul would never have chosen, God's messy providences brought him to the place where he intended them to be. God's providences are messy to us, never to him. When I was a first-year student here in university, um, I had a friend from uh, Nigeria um, called Tom, and um, he, was, he was the first African friend I'd ever had. And he was rather proud of his hair, and his hair was magnificent. Um, and he had one of those little brushes, and sometimes we were having coffee, he would, he would kind of brush his hair. And when I, I mean, you'll think I was really naive, and I was really naive. I said to him, Tom, does that not hurt? I mean, all those hairs on your head, like tangled together, does it not hurt when you start brushing it? He just burst out laughing. And he put his fingers into his head, and he, he pulled out one of the strands, and then he pulled out another <laughs> strand, another strand. What an idiot I am. To me, it looked as though they were all tangled up together, every single one of them in its perfect place. And I thought, as a young Christian, isn't that how the providence of God is? It looks dark and very tangled, and yet every single step is in it's right place. He plants his footsteps in the sea. You know that line from William Cooper's hymn? It's based on Psalm 77. That God plants his footsteps in the sea. That is fantastic, but it's problematic to us. Because anyone who manages to plant his footsteps in the sea is someone whose footsteps you will not be able to follow. And Paul understands this principle. Providence can seem messy. 
Where do you see that proved? Chiefly. At the cross. The second principle is this. If we need that recognition, the providence of God seems messy, but it's never messy to him. Then the second principle is, it is right for us to understand the providence of God. It's right for us to try and understand what God is doing in our lives, but it's never right to second guess him. Now, why do I say these two things? Because Paul has done this, hasn't he? He has tried to interpret the significance of his imprisonment, and he's been very successful. He believes he's going to be released, but he doesn't extrapolate from that release that that's how the providence of God always works. Turn to the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you discover that he believes God's providence now is his execution. And that's a great lesson for us. Because it's so easy to, when God graciously brings you through a difficult situation, and you think the providence of God, that is wonderful, and then you assume that every difficult situation that you find yourself in is going to have the kind of conclusion that you will personally enjoy. That's where you would stumble. And what Paul is on about here is that you leave God's providence to God. True, you seek to understand what he is doing, but you also need to understand that every deliverance God brings to your life through his providence is actually a preparation for the next test that's going to come. And you don't rely on what happened the last time to substituting for trusting in the Lord for what is going to happen the next time. And then there's a third principle. And the third principle is this. It's pretty obvious now that God fulfills his purposes. We need to remember this. God fulfills his purposes in ways we don't expect. Chief example of that in Paul's life actually was the death of Stephen. I am utterly convinced of this. If you read Paul's letters with any sensitivity, then you will see Stephen's fingerprints are all over his life. But who would have thought it? Who would have thought that the death of this brilliant young man, great preacher of the gospel, full of the Spirit, full of power, full of grace, full of the Word of God, full of fruitfulness, and now he's lying dead. What a disaster. And yet this is the instrument that God obviously used to not only to bring Saul of Tarsus to himself, but to build principles into Saul's understanding of how the gospel works that are embedded in all of his letters. And he sees it here, the effect of his imprisonment. It's totally unexpected. It's the encouragement of others. You know, John Flavel, who wrote about the mystery of providence, lived in the 17th century, and the 17th century Christian writers they were, living like, they were living in the Newtonian age, so very interested in how things worked, mechanical things, fascinated by them. And they often used to use this illustration of the providence of God that only works today if you've got an expensive clock or watch. 
one that has cogs behind the face. And they were absolutely fascinated by this thing they saw so often, that it was the cogs that moved in different directions, opposite directions, that actually drove the hands on the clock to tell the right time. And they loved to use that illustration as a picture for their people of how the providence of God works. You normally use that illustration now if you're ministering in a really upper-class congregation where they've all got Patek Philippe watches or something like that. But you understand the principle. That's not how we do things. But in the divine engineering, that's how everything happens at just the right time in the right place to fulfill his purposes. And that's why we need to leave it to him. That's why we need to say with the psalmist, there are things that are too high for me, but my soul is contented like a, like a fractious child that now at last has been weaned and rests easily on its mother's love. And Paul is saying to us that's the third principle that we need to remember. And then, fourthly, finally, the fourth principle, we need to realize there is actually a secret to accepting all of God's providences. And it runs through this uh, whole chapter. If, you, if you're one of those people who marks your Bible, if you have an old Bible that you can mark and it doesn't matter so much to you. Just mark the number of times Christ is mentioned in this chapter. I think it's 18 times. And that's the secret. And he actually spells it out, doesn't he, in these famous words that again we all know in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, I think that is a challenge for us because we want to hold on to life, don't we? We love life. We love life even more as Christians. We love this life even more as Christians. We assumed this life when we were non-Christians. We love this life as Christians. We, we, we don't want to release it and all that's precious to us. We don't want to release that. But now you can understand what it is that makes Paul see things the way he sees them. Because he's in a win-win situation. For him to die is gain. Because it's being ushered into the presence of Christ. That's one of the things he emphasizes. It will be being with Christ. Immediately being with Christ. Seeing the face of the one you love. Understanding from him all the mysteries of his providence in your life. Of course it will be gain, but only gain if here and now to me to live is Christ. And if that's true, if Christ is everything, which, which even almost statistically in this chapter, Christ is absolutely everything to the Apostle Paul. It's Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, all the way home. And you see, when that is true, when that is all that matters, 
that Christ be glorified in my body, then, of course, I'm going to be able to yield to the providence of God and trust Him in everything. Like great hymn says, Whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still, whate'er He doth, and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. And this is why at the end of the letter you'll be able to say, I can do all things in Christ. Not that I'm Superman in Christ, but every single situation I'll be able to cope with. Because Christ is absolutely all to me. And so there's tremendously helpful instruction for us in this passage. And there's also this tremendously challenging Christ-fullness to it that makes us obviously ask ourselves, have I found the secret of the providence of God in my life? Is Christ all? You don't need to think of the answer to that question, do you? It has come already instinctively. That's not really where I'm at. That's not really what I want. Yes. He is everything to me. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word again. Thank you for the privilege it is for us to feel that we are a family like the Philippian family, hearing these words from someone who is also our apostle, your servant to us, and also our teacher by your Holy Spirit, but also our brother. And we pray that what he teaches us under the inspiration of your Spirit, that same Spirit will help us to understand and find ways of applying to our own lives and circumstances. But most of all, we pray that with the help of your Holy Spirit, we, each of us, and indeed all of us, without exception, may be brought to be able to say, because to me to live is Christ, life here is fruitful service. And to die will be gain because it will bring me to my blessed Lord Jesus. Make this true for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.